Well, man, we are, we are back at it today here in 1 Corinthians. And uh, man, this, this passage is, as Rod said, it's just a precious, precious passage of Scripture and really critical. So back in chapter 12 and in chapter 14, uh, the Apostle Paul has been talking about gifts. And um, gifts in the Corinthian church was something that they were very fixated on. Something very important to them. Like it, it, they were almost obsessed to some degree with the gifts of the Spirit. Now, don't get me wrong. Those are important things. They're in God's Word. And yet, in chapter 13, for mathematicians out there, that's between 12 and 14. And chapter 15, that's after 14. I know, you got it, AJ. Good thinking, brother. I appreciate that, man. And in chapter 15, Paul kind of surrounds this whole conversation about gifts with things that are even more critical. 13 is obviously the chapter that we know of. It's the chapter of what? Love. And then chapter 15, Paul hones in on the greatest act of love of all time, namely the work of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. So Paul is wanting us to center ourselves, as it were, to build our lives, as it were, on this central truth of the Christian reality, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're going to dive into that here in 1 Corinthians 15. And let me tell you something. This passage is loaded and it's long. So I'm going to do my best. We're going to boogie, particularly at the end. It's going to be like mock speed. So I need you to put your theological thinking caps on this morning and buckle up because it's going to be bumpy and fast. So let's pray and then we'll dive right in here. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. Lord, you are kind to us this morning to remind us that our life should be centered on the work of Jesus. Help us today to, once again, see your face freshly. Hide me behind the cross of Christ, and would you speak to your people? In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. How many of you have ever experienced something that was off-center? Maybe it's the grocery cart with the rogue wheel. Maybe it's the umbrella shaft that is slightly askew and so it doesn't quite work. Maybe it's a picture frame or a piece of furniture that is not aligned properly. Maybe it's a speaker standing not quite in the right location on the stage or even a screen that isn't what it was supposed to be. Now the, the idea is simply, I didn't leave, I'm not going to leave this up very long because some of you OCD types, you're like, you're, you're chewing your nails off right now. So let's straighten that out and I'll move over to make you feel better. Dad joke level 1000, I know. Okay, uh, here's the idea. When we miss the center, it impacts everything. When the center is not right, it, it impacts the whole experience. And this was a truth that the Apostle Paul wanted the Corinthian believers to be aware of. As I said just a moment ago, the Corinthians seemed to be fixated on all kinds of things, whether it was spiritual gifts or traditions in the church or or how you dealt with food offered to idols or whatever it was. They were emphasizing not evil things, but they were overemphasizing to the point where they were wrongly prioritizing them. Here's the idea. Even good things become bad things when they become the main thing. Even good things can become bad things when they become the main thing. This was true in the Corinthians days, and it was true, remains true for us today. 
You know, in our information-saturated society, it is very possible for us to get information about all kinds of things. It's just a click away, right? And we can get fixated and down into the endless rabbit hole of all types of issues in our lives. And it's not wrong to get out on the internet and research or be well-informed. But it is wrong when we begin to displace the main thing with other periphery things. Um, Here's the idea what I think Paul is communicating to the Corinthians in this chapter and to us by extension. It's simply this. Our commitment to the gospel must be greater than all of our other commitments. Our commitment to the gospel must be greater than all of our other commitments. That's why we use the phrase here at Gospel Hope that we want to be gospel-centered believers. In fact, if you look right over here, we got a big banner, gospel-centered believers. What does that mean? It means that we want the fundamental truth of our life, the most important reality to us, to be the gospel. We want the gospel to inform and influence and impact every decision we make. Every choice in our life needs to be needs to be seasoned as it were, informed and undergirded by the work of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. Which leads to my point this morning, simply this, we must make the gospel central in our lives. We must make the gospel central in our life. So you might hear that and you say, okay, Ryan, so far I'm tracking with what you're saying, but why? Why should the gospel, why should this idea that Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died and rose victoriously on our behalf, why should that be the central thing in our lives? Aren't there other important things too? And the answer is yes, there's lots of things that are important, but here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul lays out for us at least five reasons why I think we should be gospel-centered believers. So we're going to unpack that here in the next few moments. I want to give you five reasons why the gospel must be central. Reason number one, the gospel is a priority message. That's the first reason. The gospel is a priority message. Look at verse number one of the text. Now, I want to make it clear for you, brothers and sisters... The gospel I preach to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message that I preach to you, unless you believed in vain, notice this, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received. Christ died for our sins. The first reason that the gospel should be central in our lives is simply because right here in black and white, Paul explicitly spells it out and says that the gospel is what? Most important. That's the exact terminology he uses. He says the gospel is most important. Let me ask you a question. Is everything in the Bible important? Yes or no? Now, I need you to be nuanced here. Is everything in the Bible of equal importance? No. In fact, he tells us that right here, right? He, he gives us a bit of a triage to say there's lots of things in the Bible, and they all matter. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's all from the Lord. It's all the Lord's words. And yet, in the scripture, there are some things that if you miss them, you miss everything. If I could say it very plainly, while everything in the Bible is important, the gospel alone is of first importance. This is the only thing that ultimately matters. And this simple fact 
has profound implications. Look, if the gospel was of first importance to Paul, most important to Paul, I think in one sense he's arguing that it should also be most important to you and I, right? Like, this is the thing that matters most. This is the matter of first importance. But if the gospel is of first importance, then we should be more passionate about the gospel than we are about other things. You hear me? More than about our sports teams or our political views or our stock market. Like, what do you feel your heart and your emotion? What do you start talking loud and fast about? That usually tells you what you're most passionate about. And if you never talk loud and fast about the gospel, then probably it's not of first importance to you. Uh, if the gospel is of first importance to us, it means we should speak about it more than we do about other topics. Like, are you regularly talking about the work of Christ on behalf of sinners? Now, I don't mean every conversation that you have needs to be an opportunity to share your faith. That's not what I'm saying. But does it regularly come up in your home? Do you go weeks, months, without having some sort of conversation about what Jesus has done in your life, what he is teaching you? If the gospel is of first importance to us, we should be a student of the gospel more than we are of other topics. Are you becoming an expert in the gospel? Because I think that's the call. If it's the most important reality in our life, then should we not be studying it on a regular basis? Exploring what Christ calls, or what the Apostle Paul calls in the book of the Ephesians, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Here's the good news. No matter how long you study the gospel, you never get to the bottom. We should sacrifice our time, dare I say our money, for the gospel advancement and gospel priorities. Can people tell, or can you tell your priorities by looking at your bank statement? The answer is yes, you can. Is the gospel figure into that or no? If you handed someone your bank statement and said, hey, what's my priorities, what would they reveal? Here's the reality, folks. We publicize our priorities. It's unavoidable. It really is. We publicize our priorities. If people spend time with you, in short order, they will begin to know what's really important to you, won't they? Like, you can't help it. It's an unavoidable reality. If I spend any length of time with Todd, in time, I'll be able to tell what's important to Todd. Maybe not our first conversation, maybe not our second one, but our fifth or sixth or seventh, all of a sudden, some themes will start to emerge. Here's what I'm saying. I want when people to talk to me you know, not every time I bump into them, but like over time, as I build a relationship, I want them to say, now that Ryan, he's a gospel man. In other words, that is really important to him. Have you ever met somebody who's really passionate about a hobby they have? I mean, you know, next level. I've met some hunters and some fishermen. I mean, they are off the chain, folks. You know, they talk about fishing. They probably dream about fishing. You go to their house, there's fish up on the walls. They try to decorate with fish in whatever way possible. You look in the driveway, there's the boat. They spend their money on fishing or hunting or whatever it is. And I'm not condemning fishermen. If you're a, if you're a fisherman, sorry, you're just a target right now. But it's very possible by spending time with that individual, you know what really matters to them. And in the same way, if the gospel, according to the Apostle Paul, is a matter of first importance, it ought to show up. 
we publicize our priorities. And therefore, we should be saying, I want to live in such a way that makes it plain to other people that the gospel is a priority message. I think that's part of what it means to be gospel-centered. Second thing, why should we be gospel-centered? Because the gospel is a planned message. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus dying on the cross and raising again from the dead to save his people from their sins was not God's plan B. It was always the Lord's plan. It wasn't like an accident, like the Lord's like, oh man, they got Jesus. What am I going to do now? No, this was actually the culmination of his plan that had been millennia in the making. You say, where do you get that, Ryan? Look at the verse again. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse, or 15 verse number 3. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Say it with me. According to the scriptures. Keep going. Then he was buried and he was raised on the third day. What's it say? According to the scriptures. In other words, hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus came to earth as a human being and laid down his life on the cross, God predicted that exactly that would happen. Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15. Here's God talking to the serpent. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Sound familiar? This is a clear allusion to the fact that one day Jesus would come and in his death uh, or death-defeating, devil-crushing act on the cross, he would stomp on the head of the serpent and kill him. But in the process, what would happen? He would be bruised. He would be wounded. This is what some theologians call the proto-gospel, the first gospel. But it is sharing that this was God's plan. Right after the fall happened, God is saying, and here's what I'm going to do about it. Skip ahead a couple millennia. And you get to Isaiah chapter 53, 500 years before Jesus is born. And there's a prophecy of the suffering servant that would come into the world. Here's what it says. But he, the suffering servant, was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was upon him. You could just insert that verse into Galatians or something like that. This is God saying, that is my plan. I'm sending my son into the world as the culmination of my plan. Christ died according to the scriptures. Christ was raised according to the scriptures. God was not making the best out of a bad situation. God was doing what God always intended to do. And if this is just scratching the surface. When you start to read the Old Testament, there are allusions and metaphors and pictures and prophecies of the coming Christ littered on every page of Scripture. Jesus is the new and better Adam who did not fall, fail the test but resisted the serpent. Jesus is the new and better Isaac who did not just symbolically sacrifice himself, but who actually laid down his life to save his people. Jesus is the new and better Moses who didn't just get his people to the brink of the promised land. He took them all the way in. Jesus is the new and better David who defeated an enemy far worse than an angry giant. Jesus is the new and better Jonah who didn't just emerge from a big fish 
He emerged from the grave itself. Jesus is the new and better temple where God came to dwell with his people, not for a season, but forever. Jesus is the new and better ark who all who run into him will find safety from the judgment and the wrath of God. Jesus is the new and better lamb who permanently takes away the sins of the world. Look, Jesus is the prophet we anticipated. He is the priest that we needed, and he is the king for which we wait. The Bible is not a collection of unrelated moral fables. It is one unified story culminating in Jesus saving his people from their sins. Therefore, we must be gospel-centered people because the, go- the Bible is a gospel-centered book. Look, if you pick up the Bible, look, if you pick up any part of the Bible and you don't see Jesus, according to Jesus, you're not doing it right. The Bible, from cover to cover, proclaims the fact that we are sinners who need a Savior, and God has done all that is necessary to save us from our sins by sending His Son into the world. The gospel must be central because, friends, it is central. The Bible is a book about our salvation by the work of Jesus. Number three, the gospel must be center central to us because the gospel is a proven message look the third reason i want to emphasize here is that your life should be centered on the gospel because of the simple reality it's true it's true look at what the text says verse number three again for i passed on to you as most important what i also received that christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried that he raised again on the third day according to the scripture pause Paul takes out his lawyer hat right now, and he begins to build his case. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. In other words, not only was the death and resurrection of Jesus predicted by Scripture, it was substantiated by many eyewitnesses. Paul essentially saying, look, I saw it, but don't take my word from it. There's 500 other people, and most of them saw it too, and most of them are still alive. There is credible evidence for the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Look, to be sure. Trusting in the resurrection is an act of faith. It is. Because none of us were there to observe it firsthand. Nobody's that old. Okay, nobody. I promise you. None of us were there to observe it firsthand. And so it is an act of faith. But let me say this. It is not an act of unreasonable faith. Believing in the resurrection of Jesus is not the same as Believing in once upon a time or long ago in a galaxy far far away Those aren't the same things and that's what paul is doing here. He's saying look You're just wrong (laughs) The resurrection of christ happened and there is proven credible evidence for that reality There are 500 people who saw it. Just go ask them. That's essentially what he's saying there So when we put our confidence in Christ, it's not putting our confidence in a fairy tale. Here's how one British um, court official said it. To me, 
the evidence is conclusive. And over and over again in the high court, I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. Inference follows evidence, and a truthful witness is always artless and disdains effect. The gospel evidence for the resurrection of, is of this class. And as a lawyer, I accept it unreservedly as a testimony of truthful men to facts that they were able to substantiate. What's the idea? He said, even in a court of law, the resurrection of Jesus would stand up. Now, that doesn't prove it or disprove it, but it does help us. It's still faith, but God is not asking us to put our faith in fiction. He's asking us to put our faith in a historical reality that Christ is risen. And here's the reality, if that's true. Stop, just, sometimes we just talk about this in church and we forget. But if it is really true that a man came to earth, did all the things that he said he did, and said, I'm going to die and I'm going to raise again, and then he did it, if that is actually true, then it must be central. There is no way you could push a truth like that to the periphery of your life. That can't be like, oh, the capital of Delaware is Dover. Like, I don't think about that often. It's not that relevant. I can get through all of my life without knowing that. But this truth, this truth, that Christ died on the cross on behalf of sinners and physically came out of the grave and was seen by over 500 people, that cannot be pushed to the periphery. That must be central. Number four. The gospel is a personal message, is why it should be central to our life. This was not like just abstraction for Paul. Theologians up in the ivory tower. No, this was a deeply personal thing for Paul. Verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles. Not worthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God. Notice that phrase. I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God was with me. Whether then it is I or they, we proclaim, and so you have believed. And don't forget, don't sleep on this truth. Before this man became Paul the apostle, he was first Saul the persecutor. But when the gospel invaded Paul's life, it utterly wrecked him. It changed his values. It changed his goals. It changed the whole trajectory of his life. If you were in Paul's high school class, you would have voted him least likely to become a Christian. He was not just running from God. He was assaulting God and his people. He hated Jesus. He hated his followers. He was persecuting them. He wanted nothing to do with them other than to see them destroyed. And then Paul says, hey, look, but the gospel saved even me. Even me. As we like to say around here, the gospel doesn't just do something for you. It does something to you. It is a deeply personal message. The gospel doesn't just purchase you a ticket to heaven. It gives you a new heart makes you love different things. It makes you desire different things. It changes your want to her. The gospel is a deeply personal thing. 
look, I don't know what your situation is right now, but the gospel has the ability to transform like nothing else. This is the uniform testimony of scripture. God took Abraham, the moon worshiper. Do you know he was an idolater and made him the father of his people? God took Ruth, a Moabite outsider, and raised up from her the line of Israel's greatest king. God took Esther, an orphaned exile, to boldly rescue the people of God. God took a group of fishermen the most unlikely people to influence the world and use them, as the scripture says, to literally turn the world upside down. Here's the reality. Gospel grace is always available. No one's disqualified from it. Like basically Paul is saying, if God can save me, man, he can save you. If God can change me, he can change you. That's why I think God chose Paul to write the bulk of the New Testament because before he was, he was public enemy number one of the church. And if God's grace is sufficient to change a person like Paul, there is no one whom the gospel cannot transform. And that type of message needs to be central in our lives. Last and certainly not least, the gospel should be central to our lives because the gospel is a powerful message in addition to all the other problems that were going on in corinth and they had plenty of them some of them apparently believed that there was no resurrection say where do you get that verse number 12 how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead then paul says to these folks listen listen if you believe that there is no resurrection let me take you down this logical sequence It's like, basically, if you believe this, there are some devastating consequences, and I'm not sure you want to embrace them. Verse 13, if there's no resurrection of the dead, it's like Paul, this whole tone, just just almost hear Paul say, say during this whole thing, just saying. Like, that's kind of what he's doing. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith, by the way. Moreover... We are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. The resurrection is a critical linchpin to the entire Christian faith. If you take away the resurrection, you have nothing left. Or to put it very simply, no resurrection equals no hope. But remember earlier, the resurrection was not just a bit of wishful thinking, according to Paul. Like, hey, I thought this up and this would be cool. He's like, no, this is a historical reality. It was a historical, verifiable fact. And so he rebuts these people that says there's no resurrection with a very simple idea. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 20. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. In other words, Paul kind of leans in and he says something like this. Hey guys, great talk. There's just one problem with your position. It's wrong. Okay, that's it. You're just wrong. Because Christ has been raised. I saw him. So you can talk all you want about this, about no resurrection, and it's devastating if you believe that, but it's just simply false. Then Paul proceeds to share the benefits that come to God's people through Christ's resurrection by comparing him with, by comparing Jesus with Adam. So he draws this parallel here, and it's beautiful. You see, 
in the garden, Adam acted as humanity's representative. But as we know, that story didn't end so well, did it? Part of the reason Jesus came was to be the second Adam and undo the damage that had been done by the first one. Jesus was Adam 2.0, and he came to correct all the glitches and bugs of Adam 1.0. And we see that in at least two very powerful ways. We see this idea where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. First way we see it is this. Where Adam brought spiritual death, Jesus brought spiritual life. Look at verse number 22. For just as in Adam all die, so all, also in Christ all will be made alive. <laughs> in a sense, when Adam fell in the garden, so did we. In an act of disobedience, Adam severed both himself and his descendants from a right relationship with God and the life that is found through that relationship. And that chasm was uncrossable. Adam severed the connection between God and man. And he couldn't bridge that divide. And nobody after him could either. And Jesus came, in a sense, to cross the divide that existed between God and man and to give people back life. Look, those that are in Adam, those who are in Adam, you know, we're all human beings here. And in that moment, in a sense, we were all in him. And as part of being one of Adam's descendants, we all inherit death. It's part of our DNA, right? Like, essentially, people are born on this earth, and in that moment, like, they begin the process of dying. Like, I don't mean to be morbid, but that's reality. Like, nobody's born and, like, they're just immortal. It doesn't happen. We're born to die, in one sense, because of the sin that is in us. And that was unfixable until Jesus came. And Jesus essentially comes and he's like, I'm going to give you a DNA splice, as it were. You're not going to put away your humanity, but I am the new humanity. I'm the better humanity. And when you trust in me, I'm going to replace that death with life. And so all that are in Christ, you do have immortality in him. Just as Adam was our representative before God and he failed, Jesus came as our new representative before God and he succeeded. And so now if you trust in him, just like with Adam, you inherited death. When you trust in Christ, now you inherit life. It actually gets better. Where Adam gave temporary life, Jesus gave eternal life. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. The first man, Adam, became a living being. And the last man, Adam, a life-giving spirit. <laughs> it is a tremendous blessing to be a living human being. This present life is filled with so much joy and beauty and wonder. And it's wonderful, really. When you stop and think about this life, it is amazing to be alive. And we all share in that, in one sense, because we're descendants of Adam. We have received the gift of humanity through Adam. What a precious, precious thing. But the longer I live, and the more familiar with mortality that I become, the more I am aware that there is also something deeply wrong with us. 
namely the fact that like people aren't supposed to die. Like don't, like, don't you know that in your bones? Like, like there is a wrongness towards death. We don't even use the word. We like to say past and things like that. Because we like to soften the blow. Because death feels so final. And you're like, when you stand at a graveside or at a funeral, you're like, no, like they, no, that like they're, this is a right. Have you ever felt that? You folks that have gotten up in years and your body doesn't cooperate the way that it once did. There is a sense of like, you just have to embrace it. But uh, the reality is like, this is wrong. Like, it's evil in a sense that people die. And that's the truth. Death is evil. It was brought into this world by sin. You know, my, my dad has Parkinson's disease. And over the years, as, I, as I've watched his body weaken, there's a part in your heart that says, what is, this isn't right. So what, what did Jesus came to do? He came to say, you know, all that wrongness, all that death that is in you, I'm going to replace it with not just life for a while, for 60 or 70 or 80 or by God's grace, 100 years. I'm going to replace it with life that will never end. Jesus came to replace the death that is in us, this temporary life that we're given with eternal life for those who trust in Jesus. Look at what it says, verse 49. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will bear the image of the man of heaven. Only through Jesus. Listen, can you be what you were supposed to be? You can begin to become what you were made to be. Here's why. Because Jesus reversed the curse. He's the curse breaker. He came and he undid all of the wrongness and all of the badness and all of the evil that is present in the world by becoming the perfect sacrifice and bearing all of our sin, but also all of the consequences of our sin on the cross. And through his resurrection, we inherit his life and his power. And when Jesus did that, here's the, here's the coolest thing. He came and he swept over and conquered the brokenness that was in the human genome. And it wasn't even close. Look at what it says. Verse 54, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. Listen, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't win on a last second shot. Death was swallowed up. Death was decimated. It was a blowout because the life that is in Christ is greater than the death that is in us. Or if I could say it very plainly, the death in us is no match for the life that is in Christ. It's not a contest, friends. Look, it's like sin and death and the devil. The best they can do is build sandcastles. Oh, they can be elaborate. They can put their moats and walls and towers. 
They can do all that they want. They can win every sandcastle building competition. But when the tidal wave of God's grace comes sweeping in, even the memory of those sandcastles are going to be washed away. That's all they got. Look, the devil took his best shot. It was death. That's what he loaded the gun with, and he lost. Where death? Where death is your victory? Where is your sting? It is gone because Jesus overwhelmed death with the life that is in him. And that has profound implications for his people. So put that back up on the screen again there. I want you to say this statement with me. The death in us is no match for the life that is in Christ. Say that. Okay, we need to do it more like a choir because you're all on different pages here. Let's do it this speed. The death in us is no match for the life that is in Christ. Say it one more time like you mean it. The death in us is no match for the life that is in Christ. Okay, you ready? Because you're going to say it a bunch of times. So when you feel far from God and beyond his reach, you can trust what? The death in us is no match for the life that is in Christ. When that stubborn habit shows absolutely no indication of breaking, you can say, the death in us is no match for the life that is in Christ. When you find yourself in the most difficult, painful situation in your life and you don't know if you could take another step, you can say, the death in us is no match for the life that is in Christ. And dear saint of God, when your physical body fails, and you prepare to breathe your last. Even if you only have a whisper, you can confidently say, the death in us is no match for the life that is in Christ. The gospel has the power not simply to redecorate our lives, give us a new throw pillar or a couch. The gospel has the power to completely renovate, gut us from the bottom up, and give us new everything. Behold, I have come to make all things new, and that includes us. We don't need redecoration. We need renovation. And thankfully, the power in the gospel is more than sufficient to give us just that. So I'm going to close with three very practical things. You might hear all this and say, Pastor Ryan, I hear you. I want to live like the gospel is central in my life. How do I do it? I want to, I want to want to, or at least I want to want to want to. How do I begin to live in this way? Let me give you three simple things. First thing is this, take in the gospel. Do you read your Bible? I'm not, I'm not trying to be like unkind or anything, but really, do you read your Bible? Because it is the word of life. And the way that we remind ourselves of God's word is by getting in the scripture. Hey, I know I'm preaching to the choir right now because you're here this morning, but do you make the gathering of God's people a priority in your life? I don't come here because I got my act together. I come here because I need to get my act together. I need to be reminded by the preaching of God's word, by the singing of these songs, by the reading of scripture, by the testimony of my brothers and sisters. I need to be reminded that the gospel should be central to my life. And that's what we try to do. Like every week in one sense is a treatment for our spiritual amnesia. 
just let's just remind ourselves of what is reality, that the gospel is central to our lives. I know this has been a tough season. Listen, I know it has been a weird season. But let's not tune out from gathering with God's people because it's easier, folks. Let's gather with God's people, not because we got it together, but because we don't. And we need to be in the house of the Lord with our brothers and sisters so that we can be reminded of things of first importance. Hey, Pastor Rod and I promise we're not going to talk about periphery things here. We don't got time for that. We got an hour a week. We're going to talk about central things and drive us back to the work of Christ on behalf of sinners. Third thing you can do to help us keep the gospel central is lift up the gospel. Amen? I'm sorry, I didn't say two. Take in the gospel, give out the gospel. That's number two. Now, one of the best ways that you can keep the gospel central in your life is by just talking about it with others. Does it show up in your conversation? Are you sharing Christ with those that don't know the Lord? Are you sharing Christ with those that do know the Lord? Because if it's something that's central in our lives, it will come up in our speech. And then finally, sorry, I just threw the worship team off. They're coming now. We want to lift up the gospel. What does that mean? Man... Will you get Spotify or Amazon Prime? I'm not getting any commission. And just dial into some music that would help you remember what Christ has done on your behalf. You let that be the soundtrack of your life rather than all the other stuff. I'm not saying don't listen to other music, but I'm forgetful. And I need to be reminded about what Jesus has done for me. Will you just lift up the gospel? Sing, even if you're bad. I am. Everybody's good in the shower. Sing about what Christ has done for us. And I want us to do that just now. So will you stand on your feet? And I'm going to pray. And I'd like us to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for sinners. Let's make the gospel the main thing. Father, we thank you for sending your son to live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died. We thank you that he rose and that that matters, Lord. That because Jesus is risen, all of these things are true and it changes the way we function. Lord, we thank you that the death in us is no match for the life that's in Christ. We are alive because of Jesus and we are alive forever because of what he's done for us death is not the end of the road. It's just a doorway to the rest of our lives. Lord, I pray that you would help us to believe these truths and be a church filled with people who make the gospel central. Oh, Father, thank you for Jesus. Let's sing his praises right now. Amen.